The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kanesan. Today, I'm happy to have Jennifer Hickey back on the show as our guest. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me again. Jennifer is a postdoctoral fellow at the VHC at Emory Law. She's interested in reproductive justice, police misconduct, government accountability, and technology and society. Jennifer's most recently published article is about a vulnerability theory approach to police misconduct, and it's called From Apples to Orchards, a Vulnerability Approach to Police Misconduct. You can find it in the, text, in the Texas Journal on Civil Liberties and Civil Rights. Jennifer, let's talk a bit about your article. What inspired you to write this article? It's coming on the heels of a huge social justice movement um, of the Black Lives Matter movement, which targeted police misconduct specifically. Yeah, and we were really in the heart of of that movement, I think, too, when I first wrote the article, uh, because it was actually written uh, February, is it? 2019, I think, uh, when it was first submitted. And there was a bit of a delay in getting it published because of COVID. Uh, so it just came out, but it was actually a year late. <laughs> uh, so we were really kind of in the thick of things at that point, I think, when I when I was writing it. Um, also, I uh, am a civil rights attorney, or, or was. And so I did some police misconduct work um, when I first started my practice. And so kind of looking at um, what I consider to be some of the challenges and failures of the justice system to achieve justice for victims of police misconduct uh, is what really inspired me to write, which was essentially my first article uh, with my fellowship with VHC. How was it different for you to look at this issue of police misconduct? You looked at it previously as a civil rights attorney, and now you're looking at it from, I guess, a larger academic perspective. How do how do things change in the way that you see them? Right. I mean, I, I guess I had taken the vulnerability seminar, you know, during my time at law school. So it, it was kind of always in my mind um, as, you know, using vulnerability theory to kind of approach things from a more systemic and institutional perspective. So one of the first things I noticed when I began, you know, litigating um, police misconduct cases, which is litigated under uh, federal statute section 1983 um, as a constitutional violation of Fourth Amendment rights, um, when I started litigating these individual cases, um, you know, I was just kind of immediately struck by the absence of, you know, kind of a larger context discussion about the factors that that lead to police misconduct. And, you know, just generally, um, as I learned more of the Section 1983 jurisprudence, realizing how much the court has kind of narrowed the availability of this relief uh, almost to the point where you have to target individual police officers for relief. Um, and there are a number of ways in which, you know, that relief is hard to come by, even in the limited circumstances that you're allowed to seek it. Um, and, you know, there's been some national discussion about legal reform. Uh, the doctrine of qualified immunity in particular in Section 1983 cases receives a lot of attention. Uh, and so kind of learning about all of that and and some of the shortcomings with that sort of prompted, I guess, 
the first part of my article uh, when I began writing about police misconduct, you know, just looking at at those types of issues, but then kind of moving from my background in vulnerability theory, moving to, you know, well, how would we look at this from a more systemic perspective? So what does vulnerability theory add to your analysis? Right. So I, I guess first and foremost, the the primary concern with, you know, kind of our current approach to justice from a police misconduct standpoint um, is how individually focused it is. So, um, you know, a lot of both, I guess, the judicial solution as well as kind of the popular rhetorical solutions are focused on um, individual injury and, you know, the actions of individual officers, um, rather than talking about, you know, the larger contextual uh, background. So I, I, you know, I wanted to apply vulnerability theory to kind of bring to light, I guess, also some of like the less, I feel like less discussed, at least in the popular literature, um, aspects of, of things that might contribute to police misconduct that I think kind of get lost in our focus on the actions of individual officers and the in the injury to individuals. Um, so my my primary concern was to basically take vulnerability theory and sort of reframe the discussion, not as, you know, an individual police officer violating individual rights, but rather as a failure of the state to provide resources needed for resilience, you know, aka public safety essentially. And what does that look like when we change the analysis from kind of a negative rights perspective to a positive state obligation perspective? And then we can begin to examine the structural factors that might contribute to police misconduct. And a large part of the article really is saying, to put it succinctly, is to saying that neoliberalism is to blame for a lot of police misconduct. I mean, really, the article at its heart is saying that kind of the same neoliberal tropes of individual responsibility um, and individual injury, as well as kind of market oriented efficiency and privatization, those those kind of themes run throughout both the problem of police misconduct as well as our current solution with 1983 jurisprudence. Um, so in terms of the problem of police misconduct, uh, the article actually addresses several institutional constraints uh, that we could begin to examine under vulnerability theory um, that are based on this kind of neoliberal ideology. Um, so, the, you know, one of the first ones is just the adoption of private business techniques um, you know, within police departments. So for example, performance budgeting, um, there's been some discussion about the problems with, you know, obviously uh, targeting citizens in order to generate revenue for the police departments. And in fact, um, my article mentions that the Department of Justice in their findings on on what happened in Ferguson, um, you know, actually said, there's a quote that they said, you know, essentially the, the law enforcement practices of the Ferguson police uh, were problematic in large part because of the city's focus on revenue rather than public safety needs. So they found that, you know, the budgeting aspect to be kind of a direct motivator of the police misconduct within Ferguson. Um, and another issue related to that is how we evaluate the performance of police officers. So officers are evaluated based on metrics like their number of arrests, um, which causes obviously issues of deprioritization of public values and dehumanization of the citizens that officers are meant to interact with. Um, and one of the big examples that I give of that is, is the usage of the CompStat system in New York City, uh, which, and actually now it's used everywhere. Um, 
it's a computerized system that essentially helps officers, you know, target certain areas based on crime rates. Uh, and not only the software itself, but kind of the whole ethos that developed around it created this sort of pressure um, of competition between police agencies or even between individual officers um, and a valuing of numeric targets um, that I think, again, led to definitely led to a rise in police misconduct uh, shortly after its implementation in New York City um, and ultimately led to problematic stop and frisk policies as well. Um, and that, you know, essentially all of these types of business practices fundamentally redefine police accountability um, in fiscal terms. And this is a huge problem that I don't think gets enough focus. Redefining police responsibility in fiscal terms, that's a very powerful phrase. Can you tell me more about that and about what else you're what else you discovered in your research and any solutions that you offer? Right. Yeah. So I mean, I think that is kind of that is kind of the issue, you know, with everything I just discussed in terms of the business practices. Um, but also this, and, and the second part of the article kind of gets into this as well, this idea of the capture of police resources. So, you know, instead of being accountable to the public and to public values, uh, police are increasingly operating at the behest of private corporations. Um, and there's a number of ways that this happens that the article explores. Um, such as the rise in order maintenance policing, which again, you know, is very common in New York City and, and ultimately is one of the things that led to, um, you know, Eric Garner's unfortunate situation. Um, but basically this idea that, you know, police departments being accountable to corporations rather than the public, um, in New York City in particular, uh, urban government and spaces are primarily being privatized, um, due to lack of funding. And so, Police officers are basically operating at the behest of the private investors who have invested in these spaces. And so what was happening is, you know, they were basically being given orders to go out and, you know, clean up the streets, so to speak, um, for these private corporations. Um and, you know, this is just one particularly egregious example of, of this type of thing. But order maintenance policing also happens, you know, in many other urban areas. Um, and it's just hugely problematic because, again, the accountability mechanism at the end of the day is to corporations. Um, another area where this plays out a little bit is the usage of um, private technology. Uh, so surveillance technology like Stingray, um, even partnerships between the police and things like your ring cameras, um, where police are, you know, basically putting ads for these things, uh, you know, on their social media and, you know, operating almost as though they're advertising for commercial entities. Um, and again, this is normatively problematic just because they are public agencies meant to serve the public. Uh, but and also I should say it's problematic from the sense that, um, you know, as market actors, citizens are not they're not given any sort of market correction ability. So if we're starting to think of police as, you know, these throughout these uh, market paradigms, we're also missing on the other side of that a way for the public to even hold them accountable because this is not a traditional market service. You know, police are not supply and demand. I can't just choose not to use their services if I'm in need of them. Um, so this idea that they can operate at the behest of private corporations and using private management practices as though they are market firms, you know, when in fact there is no you know, market accountability on the other side of that is deeply problematic as well. Um, 
you know, so I, I guess in terms of like proposed solutions, um, you know, certainly transparency is a big one um, with these private software companies. A lot of times, even the police officers themselves, the police departments themselves don't know what the algorithms are doing. Um, and that's hugely problematic. There's, you know, uh, more and more of these types of technologies are being used. I just read about one that's used um, in the immigration context for uh, those who have come over um, and been detained at the border. They're being given uh, monitoring software on their cell phones, um, essentially in lieu of um, being incarcerated. And, uh, you know, again, these algorithms are private. We're not going to be able to get them if we do any sort of um, FOIA or anything like that. Um, and that's that's definitely a problem. So like the very first thing, right, is transparency. I mean, if public decisions are being made by private corporations, that's something that we need to be aware of. We need to know the exact mechanisms of that. What impact would you like your article to have overall, either on police departments or initially just in the way that the public starts thinking about all these issues? Right. So I would say both. Um, you know, I, I definitely would like to change public perception to some extent, um, you know, to the extent that we're not so focused on the actions of individual officers and, you know, individual reforms to Section 1983, but that we think more broadly about some of the institutional motivations behind police misconduct. Um, and specifically, like I said, the the problems with sort of adoption of these neoliberal um, market oriented type things, because I don't think this gets enough attention, um, you know, either from the public or from scholars um, or from policymakers. So I think that's kind of my primary, that would be my primary motivation really would just be that people start looking at this from a more holistic perspective and to think about some of the institutional factors that have been uh, addressed by this article. In the course of researching and writing this article, did you find that there are other people who are thinking about this in ways that are similar to you or similar to the vulnerability theory paradigm? I mean, in the sense that really all of the research I found around the other areas of police misconduct that, you know, the neoliberalism focused areas um, that I've mentioned, such as order maintenance, policing and adoption of business practices and things of that nature. Uh, there are definitely scholars who are talking about that for sure. Um, not necessarily under the rubric of vulnerability theory, but again, I think it's, it's one and the same in the sense that vulnerability theory by reframing the problem and the question allows us to look at these factors. And so, yes, there are other people who are looking at this um, and not just approaching it from an individual perspective or even just approaching the conversation um, from a racial justice perspective, although that is certainly one dimension of the conversation and it's an important one. Um, you know, there are people who are looking at, at other factors as well. What would you like listeners to remember from our conversation today? I guess, you know, again, I think it's important to look at police misconduct as, you know, a more systemic failure of the state to provide positive obligations for us. I think reframing the discussion, um, not even just so much from focusing on individuals to institutions, but also in terms of thinking about it as, you know, police misconduct is a violation of individual rights versus a failure of the state to meet a positive obligation. I think that shift in thinking where it's not 
intrusion on individual rights and it doesn't kind of further the rhetoric of a restrained state. Um, but instead to think, because policing in general really is often thought of as state overreach and, and it can be, um, as we've all seen. So I think particularly this area, you know, needs to be reframed a bit so that we can take a step back and say, you know, there is at least a minimal amount of services that we do need police officers to provide. Um, this is public safety is an important obligation of the state. And if misconduct is occurring, it's a failure of the state to meet that positive obligation, you know, rather than individual officers intruding on our rights and state overreach. So I think thinking about it from that shift as well um, is hugely important and, and something that I, I would like to see the discussion kind of reframed in that manner as well. And one additional thought on that too, is that um, I think by thinking about it this way, you know, we can also challenge some of the things traditionally that we haven't like government inaction. You know, our current constitutional jurisprudence simply doesn't allow us to, to challenge the failure of the state to positively provide things. So when, for example, there's a couple of very famous cases, you know, where the police just failed to help victims of domestic violence or child abuse in really egregious ways. And there was no constitutional remedy because essentially the court said, you know, this is a negative right. There's no constitutional remedy for inaction. So I think that's another important way in which thinking about it from a positive obligation standpoint allows us to address kind of a larger range of concerns as well. What strategies do you think could be implemented to help shift the way that we think about um, state obligation, about having that positive obligation to citizens? people? Um, well, I think one small thing that we could maybe consider doing is, um, you know, within the Section 1983 jurisprudence, I think, you know, the court over the years, and the article mentions this kind of in the first section, um, the court over the years has narrowed the relief such that we kind of have to focus on individuals rather than thinking of the state as being even responsible. Um, it's a small thing, but I think it reframes the discussion to, to look at the ways in which, um, we might be able to kind of re-expand section 1983 so that it's easier to obtain relief, um, against a municipality directly rather than having to name individual officers. Um, there's a number of ways that the municipal liability doctrine has been narrowed that could be kind of re-expanded so that it's not so difficult to, to, bring these claims. Um, and also, of course, injunctive relief. Um, we could certainly help to refocus the conversation, you know, away from a market-oriented perspective if we're not focused on individual damages as being the way to solve the problem. Um, and the court has done a number of things to narrow injunctive relief in the context of 1983 that could also be broadened. So I think, you know, on a very narrow level, that is one thing that would help if our existing remedy was friendlier to a positioning of, you know, government responsibility, which, as it should be, rather than individual responsibility. Um, and I will say that also reflects reality a little bit more because the article does go into depth about the fact that um, despite the fact that individual officers are named as defendants, they are not the ones who are paying uh, when they are sued for damages. So um, Joanna Schwartz, who, who's a fantastic uh, scholar on police misconduct, she published an article finding that, you know, 99% of police officers uh, or cases were indemnified by the police department. 
So the individual officers in reality are not even paying these monetary penalties, the police departments and therefore the public are. Um, and so kind of adjusting legal doctrine to at least reflect that reality might begin to help kind of shift people's perceptions about who we should be looking at, you know, when these things go wrong. Thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting. All right, great. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.